welcome to another sermon podcast from Valley Forth Church. We are a church in Spokane Valley, Washington, and are dedicated to the mission of making, teaching, and sending disciples to the glory of God. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on Apple iTunes, Sermon Audio, or wherever you find your podcasts. Also, check out our YouTube channel for additional content at youtube.com slash Church. Now, here is a message from Pastor Joe Hirsch come in our exposition of Colossians to Colossians 1 verses 13 and 14. Let us hear the word of God together. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is God's glorious word. May the marvelous truth of its salvation be drawn into our hearts as never before. Father, we ask you to come and move in power and authority this morning through the marvel of your word and the greatness of these great truths. We pray in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. As I said, we come in our exposition to a great gospel declaration here in Colossians chapter 1. It's a, it's a scriptural song of deliverance. It's the gospel compressed in two majestic verses, uh, as you'll find it in few other places in your New Testament. I think it's also divinely fitting in the timing that this is a communion Sunday, or as you might have it in your mind, it's, it's another communion Sunday. Go ahead and admit it in your heart. If you've been around church for a while, if you grew up in Awana and now you're, you're uh, way older than that, um, communion Sundays have come and gone, and they can become a little familiar, a little routine, right? It happens to all of us. I mean, we know that Jesus intended communion, and the New Testament intends it to serve as a point for us to remember what he's done, and we do, and we praise him for it. This passage, filing as it does on this particular day with us, I think can have an added impact for us today. Not just the opening of the truths of it, but how it reflects on how you take communion. So I'm delighted that I I came to this point in the teaching and it's on Communion Sunday. I, I think it can provide an added perspective to make communion even more meaningful for you and I. A perspective not just to remember, but the perspective that communion is an opportunity to give thanks. Give thanks in a focused way to Christ for not only remembering the cross, but what he did out of that and the eternal difference it makes. So it's an opportunity to take a look at communion a different way, and that is to give thanks for all that he's done and what it means. So my message is going to be built out of the text, but the applications are all going to be about communion. So a little different approach. As you remember, as we go verse by verse through this great epistle, We started uh, verses 9 to 14 last time, and if most of your New Testament translations have this as kind of a set-off paragraph, verses 9 to 14, because we have a sense, as we understand the way Paul dictated this, that this is one stretch of prayer. 
verses 9 to 14. It's one long prayer that Paul prayed over the Colossians. And so we learned last week that this is a way to learn how to pray for your church or for today's church. And that's how I taught it to you. There's one dominant part of verses 9 to 12, and that's the the great declaration in verse 9. He prayed that that church would be filled with the knowledge of God's will. When you're filled with the knowledge of who God is and what he wants, then out of that, you'll walk, verse 10, in a manner worthy of the Lord. And then verses 10 all the way through verse 12 describe what it looks like to live a life that's worthy of God. And he goes through a number of things, and he ends in verse 12 with one of the things that shows that you're walking in a sense that you want to live to the praise of God is that you live a life as a church, as a whole group of people, of giving thanks to him as a gathered body of believers in addition to your individual prayer life. So he ends with this great call and prayer, Lord, make them, the Colossians, a body of people, a church that gives thanks to you, Father because you've qualified them to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. And that's where we ended last time. The church is to thank God for the fact that he has made us qualified to enter into heaven. And he's done it all through the work of his son. Now, verses 13 and 14 conclude the prayer. And they describe in even more detail why we ought to be giving thanks to him. So they kind of take verse, they they begin with the thought in verse 12, giving thanks to the Father. And then Paul adds these further reasons in verse 13 and 14 to round out the prayer. We are to give thanks to him because he has qualified us to, to enter into heaven, verse 12. And then verses 13 and 14 describe how he did it. What he did in that marvelous work on the cross that allows you and I to be qualified to enter heaven. So this is the the summary of it all. And we go into this marvelous description of what he did in that work on the cross. And I'm going to teach it to you based on four wonderful words that he uses to describe the great work of Christ. There is the word delivered. There is the word transferred, there's the word redemption, and the word forgiveness. Some of these are familiar, some of them not so. All of them are rich with meaning. And each of them forms a reason to give thanks to God. So that's how we'll walk through the passage this morning, and it'll move us right into our communion experience, okay? So let's take a look at these. The first reason to give thanks to God is to give thanks to him for what he took us out of. And this has to do with this wonderful word, delivered. Look at it, the beginning of verse 13. He has, past tense by the way, it's an accomplished fact, delivered us from the domain of darkness. Let's take a look at this phrase here. And under each of these wonderful words, I'm going to explain each of them in the same way. I'm going to tell tell you about what the word means, and we're going to go into the meaning from the Greek text so you can get some added light. We're going to talk about what the word word means, rather, and then finally, why does this matter to us? Under each wonderful word, we'll ask those two questions. So what does this word mean, delivered, and how does it relate to us today? Well, the Greek word ruomai was very unique. It meant to rescue somebody. That's the primary way you'd you'd understand it in English. But it was picturesque. It meant to pull somebody out of harm and into your arms. 
So to rescue someone from a great danger and to reach out and to pull them out of harm, in other words, they couldn't deliver themselves, you're doing the delivering, you're doing the rescuing, and you're pulling them into your arms. So it's a beautiful word. You see, when God saved you, he didn't just handle the legal problem that your sin created between you and a holy God. He did something even more powerful. He delivered you from something. He rescued you from something. In fact, it was something that dominated your entire life. Look at it. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness. We could translate that today, the domination of darkness. You were separated from God by your sin, but you were also dominated by a supernatural enemy and you were helpless to get out from under his domination. This is very powerful. It talks about the supernatural forces that were dominating your world, even if you didn't know it. In fact, that was their greatest tool for all those years before Christ. You didn't know it. There's two ways in which Christ delivered you in his cross work and took you out from under domination. First of all, he delivered you from supernatural domination just as a force over your life. The word domain there, look at it. It it was a relation to the Greek word authority and it meant the total dictatorship of someone over someone else. It's total power, folks. Total authority, authority you had no power to resist, authority that was complete, the rule of a dictator over your life. Who was the dictator? Satan himself. You were under his total authority all through your life before you you found Christ, and you may not have even understood it. So we were under supernatural domination. I find it curious that A lot of times when we share the gospel, people resist because they say, you know, I'll think about that later. I can't tell you how many times I've had it said to me. I'll think about Christ later. There's a lot of things that I think would be good about that. But right now, I've got too much of life to live. (laughs) I got too many. Well, I'm just going to admit it. Wild oats to sow. I'm, I'm living large and I don't want Christ to cramp my freedom. If we only knew how completely backwards that really is supernaturally. You're not free at all until you meet Jesus Christ. But you think you are. Why? Because you're deceived. You're supernaturally dominated. What does the Bible say about this? 1 John 5, 19. We know that we are from God. He's speaking to a church of people who've been redeemed and delivered. We've been delivered. We are from God, but the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Total domination. The whole world there, the word world is cosmos. It meant the whole world system, the way the world thinks, the way the world acts, the way the world lives, all the things the world believes, which it believes is freedom is actually a deceived system that's controlled entirely by the power of the evil one. So who were you dominated by? By a person, by an evil authority, by Satan himself. The Bible is clear. And it's total domination. Every aspect of life without Jesus Christ is deceived and dominated. The scriptures go further. You say, well, that's, that's a pretty radical statement about the world. Although there are a lot of things that happen in the world that that explains I see incredibly wicked things done by people. 
especially in our, our new seamless media age where we're able to, to have immediate knowledge of the most heinous things people do now, things we didn't used to know about. Oh, I can understand, Pastor, you might be right. There's some really wicked people out there, and there's some really awful things that happen. You might be onto something. No, actually, this extends all the way into you as an individual. You yourself, if you don't know the Lord Jesus today, you are still under the domination of Satan, and it goes right into the depth of your life. It's very personal. You were dominated, and you are if you don't know the Lord. Ephesians chapter 2. And you were, he's speaking to this church, before you guys found Jesus, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You lived that way. It was your lifestyle. It was your total frame of reference, even if you didn't know it. You were dead in it. You were helpless to get out of it. Following the course of this world, people think they're independent. People think they've got a a, a true vision and a unique vision for their life. It's just another version of living for yourself and is where the whole culture's going. You're following the course of this world. Think you're inventing inventing anything new about how to live life without God? No, you're just repeating one of the verses in in the endless song of people deciding to live without God. You're going along with the world. You're following the course of this world, which remember 1 John, 9, 5 says, is under the control of the evil one. So there's no freedom. It's all a deception. You're following the course that everybody else is on, which is controlled by a supernatural despot, Satan, following the prince of the power of the air. There he's identified. But this gets even more personal. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. You think you're free? Actually, you're supernaturally controlled by the wicked one himself. There is a way in which his power works in your lost spirit, and you don't even know what you're doing, and you can't even control what you're doing. There's a depth of wickedness that controls us apart from Jesus Christ. No wonder we needed to be delivered And it includes everybody. Look at verse 3. Among whom we all once lived. So did I prior to Christ. So did you prior to Christ. We lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. It's a totality, and we're all headed to an eternity of judgment for that until we find Christ supernatural domination no freedom there no way out either unless someone delivers you there's also a dimension of of supernatural darkness in this word darkness look at in colossians 1 9 he says he has delivered us from the domain and it's characterized by darkness total deception total spiritual blindness it's led by a blind wicked dictator named satan himself and you are deceived along with him in chapter uh, 6 of ephesians in verse 12 paul says we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers the authorities against the cosmic powers over this present and what's the word darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. They are deceived in themselves, and they can do nothing but deceive. And that's the world culture. That's the world system. That's your worldview. That's your mindset. That's your values. That's your goals. That's your dreams. That's your habits. That's everything, your passions, everything in your life, as justified as you might think it is, and as well thought out as you might think it is, and even as loving as you might think you might be being, if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, 
Christ, all that you do and all that you are is tainted by deception. You need to be delivered from supernatural domination and supernatural darkness. You say, what a grim picture. Oh, it would be grim unless the gospel broke through. That's why the gospel has the power to do what no other human message can do to solve all this. Acts 26, 18. God spoke to Paul, and he says, I'm sending you out to a people in darkness. And when you go, I'm going to do something through you and your gospel. Verse 18. I'm going to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. There it is that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. That's what the gospel does. It's what only the gospel can do, and it's what you need done in your life if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. You need, And look where it begins, with your eyes opening. Everything else, look at the word so that. Everything else happens after that. How does that happen? The Holy Spirit invades your heart, regenerates your spirit turns the lights on and opens your eyes. And the marvel of the gospel becomes something you see in great power. Has that happened to you? So that's what the word means. We're to give thanks for what he took us out of. He delivered us, believers. Well, why does this matter to us? Well, it proves that there is a power greater than wickedness in this world. And aren't you glad? There is a power greater than wickedness in this world. People are disturbed today by the increasing levels of ugliness and wickedness and human action that they see, and they become discouraged and wonder, wow, there's growing darkness. It'll never be greater than the power of God and the gospel. You see, Jesus Christ, when he went to that cross, broke the power arc of Satan's domination over people. When he came to that cross and he went to that cross and he defeated death and sin, he took the keys of to those things out of the devil's hands. In John chapter 12, a few days before he went to that cross, he said, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. When Jesus died and rose, domination was broken and you can be set free. So communion today is a declaration of your deliverance. Think about that as we take it in just a few moments. Let's go to the second. Go back to Colossians 1 now. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness. And then we get to the second wonderful word, the word, the word transferred. And he has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Here we're, we're told to give thanks for what he placed us into. He didn't just deliver you from darkness, deliver you from deception, delivered you from the burden of sin. He actually gave you a totally new spiritual future and a totally new kingdom in which you now walk. Let's take a look at the word transferred. Answer the two questions. What does the word mean? Well, it's interesting again, transferred there. It's so odd to think about God transferring you somewhere. We, 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 we don't have a context for that. It's our best way of translating a Greek word that, that came from the ancient Greek war cultures. When a, a conquering king came and swept over a foreign people and he conquered that nation, he would often move all the people from that nation into his kingdom. He'd take them from wherever they were in a long, long, long uh, prisoner's procession, and he would take those people from their former nation as conquered people into his new nation. 
He would often parade them into his capital city in the final part of their journey. That's what this word was used to describe the moving of a conquered people. Now, usually that meant people who had been free and then now were conquered and they were moved into slavery. And you can see it many times in the Old Testament and many times in, in ancient history. Here, Paul uses it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to say exactly the opposite. When you were saved, you were transferred from one dominion to another kingdom. But you were not transferred from freedom to slavery. It's the reverse. You were transferred from slavery to freedom. It's a beautiful word picture here. He delivered you from the slavery you were in, that domain of darkness, and he transferred you to the kingdom of his beloved son. Look at the difference in the words. One is a domain and the other is a kingdom. There's a huge difference. The word domain meant dictatorship, total authority, blank authority, authority you couldn't resist. That's life under Satan's domain. He's a total dictator. You had no freedom. But then you're transferred not into another domain, but a kingdom. What's a kingdom? It's a gathering of people that follow a king. And this king is a dear and beloved king. Look at it. To the kingdom of his beloved son. So you went from from a domain where you were in slavery to a dictator, and now you've been moved into a kingdom where you're following a dear king. Do you see the difference? From slavery to freedom, from a dictator to a dear, dear king. That's what the word means. Now, what does this mean to us? Well, it means that when God saved us from Satan's domination, he didn't just leave us on our own. You think about it. Possibly could God have saved us from the penalty of our sin, guaranteed us eternal life, but then done nothing more in this life? It's sort of like saying, okay, through my son, I've, I've handled your debt of sin. You've come to me and trusted me as a saving God. Okay, now I got you out of that jam. <laughs> now you're on your own here until you get to heaven. Try not to get in any more trouble. Some people think that's kind of where it is. Okay, God handled my eternity problem through what Jesus did. And when I die, I'll step into that eternity. But between now and then, I'm kind of on my own. No, no, no. Your kingdom experience does not start the moment you die and go to heaven. Notice you are in the kingdom of his beloved son now. He has transferred you there. In other words, life in Jesus starts the moment you're saved. And it's a marvelous new life in which you start walking with a new king right now. Because Christ's kingdom is building right now. It's in a, an invisible state right now. But when you come to Jesus, you become a follower of the king, don't you? King Jesus. So when God saved you from Satan's dominion, he didn't just leave you on your own. He made you part of a new kingdom, which is a group of, a new, a group of new people following a good king. Part of a new family called the church. And, and life compared to the life we knew under Satan's domination, is pretty good here. You think about it. Yeah, with all the flaws and foibles of the church, any church, this church, all churches, oh, it's no comparison to living under the dominion of darkness. There's no comparison. We've been taken from alienation to acceptance by God. We've been taken from despair to hope, from danger 
to safety, from uncertainty to peace. That's what we get to live in as Christians. And as the body of Christ, we get to share in it. And so how does that relate to communion today? Well, we take communion together. We do it as a gathered group of people. We do it even if we're uh, viewing from a distance on video right now, live. We are still here in spirit, and we, we want to be here, but we cannot. But we are together taking this, and communion is taken together to remind us that we're part of a new kingdom, and we're following a good king. Third. There's a third wonderful word. It's the word redemption. Here he teaches us to give thanks for how he did it. He delivered us from supernatural domination. He transferred us to a new forever family. And he did it by the great work of what the Bible calls, verse 14, redemption. Now get into the, what the word means. You're probably sitting there, as I was many years ago, hearing a message like this, thinking, wow, I'm really glad the preacher's explaining this one. Because I've always been unclear on the word redemption. It's a strange word. We don't use it very often. I mean, the closest pastor I can come to using the word redemption is when we tell somebody, well, you got to redeem yourself. <laughs> You're really screwed up. <laughs> so you got to redeem yourself. And you redeem yourself by trying to undo what you did and being as good as you can for as long as you can until that person that you've messed up in the eyes of somehow begins to accept you back into their good graces. You might say, I know how to redeem myself. I've been trying to do that with my boss at work for like two years now. It's working. She's slowly melting like an iceberg, but it's getting there. Is that what redemption means? Is it a way for you to slowly make your way back into the good graces of someone you've offended? Biblically, no. It's completely the opposite. Biblically, you cannot redeem yourself because the standard is perfect and you've already lived a life of violating. You can't go back and unlive your life. No, redeem biblically is totally different and it's a lot more beautiful. This word came from the slave markets of the Roman culture. Adolf Deisman wrote the great classic on New Testament and ancient languages. It's a book called Light from the Ancient East. I got it in my first years in seminary. He says this about the word that we translate redemption. It meant to, quote, to liberate a slave by paying a price or a prisoner by paying a ransom. It was used in the slave markets when somebody was there and they had a price on their head and you walked through as a person that was interested in buying slaves and you saw the price posted above them and you paid it and they walked out following you as a liberated slave. They became yours or a prisoner served his time until his debt was paid. There was a ransom on his head. Now, how does that apply to us as Christians and to our spiritual experience? Follow, follow this with me. The Bible says we were enslaved to sin. I think I've proved that in Colossians 1.13, right? Not just to the, Satan himself, but to the penalty of sin. We were enslaved to sin. There was a price on our head. The price was perfect life, we had to have lived a perfect life, and that's because God's law in the Old Testament and throughout the New Testament is a perfect law, and that's his standard. So we had to have lived a perfect life, so we owed God a perfect life, and we also had to fulfill perfect justice because our sin created a separation between us and a perfect God. 
Now, when people look at the word redemption and and they hear that it means paying a ransom price, some uninformed Christians think that when Jesus died, he paid a ransom price to Satan to get you out of hell. That's not correct biblically. Satan didn't have that kind of authority and ultimate power. The ransom, in its sense, was paid to the character of God himself. You owed God a perfect life, and you faced God and perfect justice, and you couldn't satisfy either one. And so heading into eternity, you had those prices on your head. You could never pay it. But thankfully, Jesus came, and as he said many times in the Gospels, and Mark 10, 45 is one example, the Son of Man has come to give his life as a ransom for many. He's come to pay the price that you have on your head. And that's what he did. Paul said, we have redemption. We have had the price on our head paid. We have it all transacted and taken care of by Jesus Christ. That's what the word means. There's a world of preaching in that word. What does it mean to us? Well, it means we've been bought with a price, doesn't it? So we should live like it. Someone bought out of the slave market followed with dedication and lifelong loyalty the one that bought them. And that's what the New Testament says we're to do. Scripture says we have been purchased with a price, 1 Corinthians 6. As such, the Scripture says we are no longer our own. We belong to Him. So you shouldn't live your life the way you choose. You need to live your life the way your master calls you to live it because now you belong to him. We, we just miss this so much in our Christian experience. And, I mean, think about it. If, if you take your life as a Christian and do what you want with it, aren't, aren't you actually taking something that now belongs to somebody else? That kind of hurts, doesn't it? If you're not following after him and regarding yourself as bought with a price and living for him, you're, you're, you're robbing him of a life that he bought and that he wants to gain pleasure from. How does that relate to communion? Well, communion is a reminder of everything you owed him. When you hold communion in your hands, it's that ransom payment in pictures. Broken body, poured out blood to satisfy a price you couldn't pay demanded by an eternal judge. And it's all been taken care of. Amazing grace. Well, here's the last. One final wonderful word, forgiveness. We have this redemption, he says, at the end of verse 14, the forgiveness of sins. Here we learn to give thanks for what we have, not just for what he did in verse 14, giving us redemption. But now we live in something. Now there's something that's true of your relationship to God, my friend, if you've trusted Jesus Christ, that you'll never lose. I don't care if you backslide. I don't care if you stumble. You now live in the forgiveness of God. If you're his, you're his. Now he'll bring you back onto the road because he bought you with a price. He'll bring you back into the path, 
but you will never lose your standing of forgiveness before God. You have the forgiveness of sins. What's the word forgiveness means here, mean here? Another picturesque word. Now, you won't always find a, a gathering of two verses in the Bible that have this much Greek behind them, but today's the day, so here we go. You might think, okay, forgiveness. Now, pre preacher, you've actually gotten to a word that I do understand. I get forgiveness. Forgiveness basically means I'm not going to be mad at somebody anymore. I'm not going to be mad at them anymore. I, I might not be able to forget what they did, but I'm not going to be mad at them anymore. That's forgiveness to most of us, isn't it? It's, a, it's kind of a, a future frame of mind. Is that what it is? No, that's a good start. But as usual with God, there's so much more and it's so much more beautiful. The word forgiveness here, Aphiame in the Greek, it meant to send something away, to put something out of your sight. Hmm. So it's not just not being angry anymore. It's put some, putting something out of your sight, out of your vision, to send away. And here's one authority that I read this week. I'll just read from his commentary. Aphiame. To send away from oneself, to send away, to bid to go away or depart. It speaks of the act of God at Calvary where Jesus died on that cross, paying the penalty of human sin, thus satisfying the just demands of God's holy law, putting away sin, bidding it go away out of God's sight. This was symbolized in the Old Testament by the scapegoat. How many are familiar with the word scapegoat? Some of us, quite a few of us. Basically, when you're made to be a scapegoat, you're made to be to, to be seen as guilty for something that somebody else did. You become the scapegoat for what they did. That actually came from an Old Testament ceremony that God gave to the children of Israel. Every year around the Day of Atonement, their sins were covered by, by the blood of a lamb that was put on the mercy seat before the presence of God in the tabernacle or the temple. And the priest would come out and say, your sins are covered for the year, and they would do it all over again. But when he came out after shedding that blood, they brought a goat out before him. And as he represented all the people of Israel, he would reach out to that goat, its head, and he would lean his whole weight on it. And with both hands, lean his whole weight on the head of that goat. And that was symbolically, he as the representative of the people was transferring all of their sins onto the head of that goat, the scapegoat. Then the goat was pulled away and it was let out of the city in, in front of all the people as they were gathered there to watch or let out of the encampment. And it was let outside the bounds of the city or the encampment. And it was let out outside the walls and it was let out way into the wilderness. So, so that it would be set alone out in the wilderness and never be able to find its way back. It was an image to God when he said, listen, I look at your sins and I've put them on a scapegoat and he will carry them out of the camp, out of the walls. He'll take the penalty for what you did and I'm going to put that out of my, my sight forever. What happened with the Lord Jesus Christ? The, the Bible says God laid upon him the iniquity of us all. God the Father took your sin that you deserve to pay for, and at the cross, he leaned all of it onto his beloved son. Was Jesus let out of the city on crucifixion day? Yes or no? 
Yes. Was he led out in the eyes of all the people? Yes or no? Yes. Did he take the full wrath of God upon him in that hour, in the great hours of darkness? Yes or no? Yes. Jesus was represented by the scapegoat of the Old Testament scriptures. And that scapegoat took sin out of God's sight. And when Jesus died and satisfied the wrath of God, and when he rose again, God said about your sin, if you've trusted the Lord Jesus Christ, it's out of my sight now. He's taken it completely away. When you bring your sin to God as a Christian, you acknowledge it, you let him know about it so your fellowship is restored. But in terms of any penalty with it, God basically says, what sin? You say, that's a pretty dramatic statement, Pastor. You got, you got scripture on that? Oh, I've got wonderful scriptures on that. Isaiah 43, verse 25, God says of himself, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. Blotting them out means you can't even read it on the paper anymore. And I will not remember your sins. Is that clear enough for you? Oh, you'd like more. I say, fine. The text read in our hearing earlier today, Micah 7, how beautiful. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression? You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. God is using a marvelous word picture there to say that your sin, once you've trusted in Jesus Christ, is cast out of his sight, and it ought to be cast out of your sight into the depths of the sea. It can't be brought back up, and it will never be seen again. Praise the Lord. You say, well, that's for Old Testament believers. That's for Israel. Okay, New Testament. Hebrews eight twelve, For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. I think it's clear enough. What a marvelous gift we have in our Lord. So how does that apply to communion as we begin to draw our hearts toward this? Well, communion is a chance to remember that he forgets. Communion is a chance to remember that he forgets and has forgotten all of our sin. And when you hold it in your hands, you see the reason why the broken body, the shed blood, the wrath taken. So Paul finishes his great prayer for the Colossian Christians by reminding them to give thanks for a Savior who did everything needed to save them until nothing more needed to be. That's Jesus. How did he do it? Four wonderful words tell the story. He delivered us from Satan's power. He transferred us to a king's family. He redeemed us from the price that was on our head we couldn't pay. And he forgave us and then forgot it all forever. Hallelujah. I know that some of you came in here today from what I would call a life lived in the dull gray. I know it. Due to something you've lost... There's a kind of a low-grade dullness in your life right now. Maybe there's a health issue that's come, or a relationship, a spouse, a grandchild, where a direction's been taken that breaks your heart, or some other hope that's been lost. And if I were honestly to have spoken to you as you walked in, you might have said, you know, I just don't have a lot to be thankful for these days. In terms of maybe some of the situations in your life, 
You're probably right. But in terms of the great, great issues in your life, you're completely wrong. You do have a lot to be thankful for today. Communion now as we gather is a God-designed opportunity to remember that. 